Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 49. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and I am gutted I didn't win Best Screenplay at the Oscars this year, despite the fact that I'm always changing my TV's resolution from 16.9 to widescreen and back again. And if a film almost winning an Oscar and then instead another film winning an Oscar and everyone being quite nice about it to each other because the film that didn't win that one won loads of other ones wasn't enough drama for you, then never fear as right now global politics is absolutely fucking nailing it on the big screen. Sorry. Uh, screen. Nominees for the most disappointing performance of the last week are the Labour Party, who managed to lose their seat in Copeland for the first time since 1935 to the Conservatives who are aiming to shut down maternity services at the local West Cumberland Hospital. That's right, either the people of Copeland really hate babies for sponging off the state and not speaking English and think now is finally the time for payback because those babies can fuck right off, or Labour are so bad people would prefer a shit hospital to voting for one of their MPs in a by-election. I'm guessing it's the latter, in which case that's probably the harshest review of a political party you're likely to hear. And who is to blame for a whole area willing to risk an entire generation having to be born in a lay-by off the A595? Well, according to who you ask in Labour, it's everyone including the boogie, but somehow not including hipster Radagast Jeremy Corbyn. Blame was placed on Blair emerging from his crypt just days before to shout down Brexit. Then it was the fault of fake news saying Corbyn wasn't in favour of nuclear power because he wasn't until three weeks ago. Then it was the political establishment who've let everyone down and so the people of Copeland voted them in, you know, because they're big fans of masochism, obviously, and you can tell that because some of them live in an area called Goosebutts and have never changed its name. It was also the first by-election gain for a governing party since 1982, so unless people in Copeland are so clearly fucked off with the political establishment that they want them to have less free time in the week, it really can't be the case in Copeland. The Momentum Group and Labour MP Kat Smith both said that as they are 13 points below the Conservatives in the poll, they only lost the Copeland seat by 2,000 votes, so that has to be an achievement. Hmm, someone seems to have confused election strategy with the rules for the pointless board game. But despite public calls for Corbyn to step down, he's insisting that he will stick around till 2022, as he says, finish the job. Though whether he means he's making sure the position of Labour leader will no longer exist once he's done remains to be seen. And the next nominee is George Freeman, Conservative MP and head of the Number 10 Downing Street Policy Unit, who defended the government's plans to cut disability benefits by £3.7 billion by saying they want to make sure they get the money to really disabled people. According to Freeman, people who suffer anxiety or mental health issues aren't really disabled, you know, just a bit disabled. But he didn't really clarify what was really disabled, but judging by his very ill-thought-through comments, he probably just means people who are already dead. Freeman has apologised on Twitter and he said he suffered from traumatic anxiety as a child and doesn't need lectures on the damage that those conditions cause. Although, if he really did suffer those as a child, he wouldn't be backing causing extra anxiety for all of those who might lose their PIP payments as a result of the government's traumatic plans. This week's third nominee is amphibian in a wind tunnel Nigel Farage, who told fellow Smegma King Piers Morgan that he was too frightened to leave his home because of the liberal media and metropolitan elite demonising UKIP. You know, when they just reported accurately on all the awful shit that they do. 
It isn't known which of Farage's non-elite two houses it is, whether it's the family one in Bromley or the four million pound bachelor pad Georgian house in Chelsea, but I presume Nigel is so anti-elite that he just gets a bus between the two and is too scared to leave the bus or the houses. Toadface then posted pictures of himself having dinner in the US with Donald Trump because he's a massive lying prick. But the winner of most disappointing performance of the last week is... UKIP leader and Pinocchio source material Paul Nuttall, who failed to win the seat in Stoke by over 2,000 votes, losing to Labour and making it less of a by-election for UKIP and more of a goodbye election. Yes, I said that out loud. It seems the people of Stoke did listen to Nuttall, though, by refusing to give a job to someone who's a stranger to the area. Perhaps knowing he lied about losing friends in the Hillsborough tragedy, they just wanted to grant him a real opportunity to feel some sort of actual loss. Nuttall said that UKIP are not going anywhere, which by the Stoke result seems absolutely appropriate. I mean, I suppose if they did go somewhere, they'd be immigrants to wherever they ended up and would have to hate themselves. Nuttall will now have to go back to where he came from, although that is Merseyside, so it might be a bit tricky for him after the past few weeks. When asked by a BBC reporter if he can be a UKIP leader while never having been elected as an MP, Nuttall replied, but I am elected. I'm an MEP. Yeah, Paul, and I'm sure that never turning up to that job and campaigning to render yourself unemployed really helped sway the people of Stoke that it was worth voting for you, you utter numpty. And in memoriam, much-loved Labour MP Gerald Kaufman passed away this week at the age of 86. Uh, He'd held his seat since 1970 and was known for his outspoken views against welfare reform and the Israeli treatment of Palestine. Kaufman famously called Labour's left-wing manifesto in 1983 the longest suicide note in history, though I can't imagine what his will says as he's leaving Labour now with another by-election, which could very much be the same thing again. R.I.P. Gerald Kaufman. And finally, worst mail goes again to American President Donald Trump, who banned CNN, The Guardian, The New York Times, Politico, BuzzFeed and the BBC from his press briefings due to them being the enemy of the people, as he said. He also banned the Daily Mail, but let's be fair, he was correct with that one. You know, credit where it's due. News groups that were allowed to listen to an hour of his stupid face vomiting bullshit included top fiction site Fox News and where articles go to have tantrums Breitbart. So loads of investigative journalists were left with free time to actually investigate Trump's dodgy connections and concerning policies, while the media wankers had to sit through a spoken turd event. Yeah, I'm sure that won't backfire. And I'm very pleased to accept the award for Best Tin and Duyab and Partly Political Broadcast host. And I would like to thank you, the listeners, for continuing to board your ears onto my weekly sound train as we traverse various sounds of discontent. Big thanks to Dave the Happy Geek uh, for the iTunes review this week. It was very, very nice of you. And um, if you are a not-so-happy geek, why not give this show a review on iTunes as well, as I'm sure it was pivotal in Dave's outward contentment. Uh, Also, a very big thanks to Dan, who donated a silly amount of coffees to my Ko-fi account for this show. Uh, which was unbelievably nice of him and uh, if I use it all for coffees I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a heart spasm within days um if you want to donate to the Kofi account for a one-off donation towards this show uh, do head to the totally forgettable ko-fi.com forward slash wait for it capital L-A 065 capital L capital H capital J why? Because it's difficult. Um, or if you'd like to join the Patreon, which is much, much easier to remember, but it is then a monthly donating thing and in dollars, uh, head to patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. Uh, it's, you know, it is easier, but it's also more difficult. It's, uh, nothing in life is easy. This is how it goes. Um, and later in the show, I'm going to be giving you some info on stuff I'll be adding to that soon as well. Alternatively, if you want an easier method, uh, just put a load of unmarked notes in a bin bag uh, by the third tree along from the tennis court in Finsbury Park and I'll collect it on Wednesday afternoon. Thanks. Um, Also, 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 uh, thanks to the crew that came to my work in progress at Angel Comedy last week. Um, Seriously, huge thanks uh, because it was very, very much a work in progress with not much work, not much progress, really. Um, And everyone that came was super patient despite me talking at 200 miles per hour and then realising halfway through certain jokes that those jokes didn't have a punchline yet. So uh, really appreciate if you came and sat through that and hopefully you'll be able to come to one a few months down the line when it's finished still there were definitely some keepers uh including comparison between tomatoes and refugees that seems to work so there is still some hope for the show yet um my next preview is at the glasgow comedy festival where i'm going to be doing a double header preview with the brilliant brilliant beck hill if you don't know her find out about her she's absolutely brilliant she's got fantastic stuff on youtube very very funny and a good friend of mine um we're going to be at the glasgow comedy festival on march the 12th at the hug and pint which is meant to be a hell of tasty vegan restaurant so that means i gotta remove all the cheesy jokes from my set i don't 
I don't have cheesy jokes. I'm, I'm better than that. Um, you can grab tickets to that show uh, via the Glasgow Comedy Festival website, which you can probably find by typing those words into a computer or a phone or a typewriter or the air if you're an exceptionally good mime artist. Um, and actually, because that is a Sunday, there might not be a show, uh, a podcast, on the following Tuesday, because I normally write it on a Monday. So if you come along, I'll tell you some of the things that I would have got angry about that week, I suppose. Uh, but I'll keep you posted on that podcast if it's happening in the next few weeks. Okay, so on this week's show, I have a chat with Konstantin Kissin, who is a politics and economics translator turned comedian, who explains what the Dermo is going on with that bloody Putin. That, that's Russia for shit. Uh, I looked it up. And I'm going to be looking at Trump whinges and why the UK government don't want you bringing your holiday romance home with you. And by that, I mean loved one. Not that time you went to the US and found birthday cake flavour Oreos. You can bring loads of those back. And I did. But before all of that, there is, of course, this. Despite Ian Duncan Smith no longer being head of the Department of Work and Pensions, the Ministry has really tried hard to keep the same attitude of trying their very best to ensure that the people it's meant to help have neither of those things. During the by-elections of Stoke and Copeland last week, the DWP introduced emergency legislation to change the eligibility criteria for people to receive personal independence payments, also known as PIPs, which refers to the size of benefits most people will get as this replaces the disability living allowance system. According to Minister for Disabled People, Health and Work, Penny Morden, who is known for her rude jokes in Parliament, made yet another rude joke when she tried to explain that cutting 160,000 disabled people's benefits will provide greater clarity on what physical and non-physical conditions will receive what payments. Ha ha ha, hilarious, except not. By cutting benefits from 160,000 people, you're mainly giving the public greater clarity on whether or not you give the remotest of shits about people with disabilities. The PIP assessment is based on daily living and mobility, but if you suffer from a psychological issue that causes you distress if you go outdoors, perhaps induced by the morbid fear a Conservative MP is going to walk by and take away everything you have, but you seem physically mobile, then you're not going to receive any points in that area. So actually, it's all about giving much greater clarity on the remotest of shits the government give about disabled people, and isn't even further beyond the horizon poo for anyone with mental health issues. And of course, points mean prizes, and by prizes I mean the right to have enough benefits to not die. So changing this criteria is going to save the government £3.7 billion a year, but they insist that that's not why they're doing it. Meaning that yes, it is just because stripping entitlements from people is their favourite thing, probably only after giving entitlements to loads of people that don't deserve or need them. It has been challenged by Labour, Lib Dems and even Conservative MPs, uh, at least in the guise of Heidi Allen, who it regularly seems like she joined the wrong party but is too proud to admit it. And hopefully PIP will be subject to an unfair assessment soon and be deemed not able enough to give people with physical and non-physical disabilities what they actually need. More on this in a future episode. This week was the Scottish Labour Party conference, or as it's now known, everyone from the south going to visit Ian Murray on a jolly because he gets all lonely up there. This year in Perth, I'm not sure Ian or Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale appreciated the rest of the party making an effort, as there were more faux pas than a Scottish pet shop owner telling you how many feet a dog has. Firstly, in the transcript of his speech released before he made it, London Mayor Sadiq Khan said there was no difference between those who seek to divide Scottish and English people and the divisions sought by racist or religious bigots. Which is a pretty full-on thing to say, and not at all correct when you understand that most people seeking Scottish independence post-Brexit are probably doing so to avoid all the racist and religious bigots in England and therefore stay in Europe. Khan retracted his statement, saying that he just meant the UK needs to be united in today's current climate, but if that's his way of trying to unite people, I can't imagine how he met his wife. Following Khan's error, Jeremy Corbyn managed to thank the SNP instead of Labour MSPs, which, to be fair, probably did appeal to Scottish voters more than his original intended message. Other choice soundbites of Jezza's speech include his calls for unity between Scotland and the rest of the UK, that you feel he should probably start within his own party first. And he quoted MSP Neil Findlay by saying, You can't pay your bills with a salt air and you can't eat a flag. I've been to Edinburgh many times and there are enough shops selling salt air merch and many even have candy flags, so he's wrong even on that. Corbyn also forgot to mention Scottish Labour leader Kezia Dugdale's calls for a federal Britain, giving more powers to Holyrood for MSPs. Although maybe, by him leaving that for her to say, he was trying his best to delegate more responsibility. Calls for a second Scottish independence referendum are growing and there is much speculation that SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon will ask for one before the UK leaves the EU. So it could be as early as 2018 or 2019. If Scotland becomes independent and rejoins the EU without a deal with England, there could need to be a hard border between the two. And then, who would go and visit poor Ian Murray? 
The Metropolitan Police Force has its first female commissioner in the shape of the unfortunately named Cressida Dick. I suppose if anything's going to make you want to handcuff people, it will be years and years of being called C. Dick. In terms of equality, it's brilliant and long overdue that they now have a female commissioner, but Dick's reputation will always be hindered by being in charge of the operation that led to the shooting of the innocent Brazilian electrician Jean-Charles de Menzies on the London Underground in 2005. Dick was the gold commander of the Met at the time, yes, gold commander Dick, and was absolved of blame in the inquiry. And she's expressed much regret over the incident, and there is a possibility that such a tragic event will mean that she is more cautious and more careful a leader now. Either that or having Dick in charge could be messy for London. No, I'm not sorry about any of that sentence. As Oscar Wilde once said, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And if that's true, then right now the country of Russia, and in particular its leader Vladimir Putin, must be basking in Wilde's statement. Well, I mean, he would if, uh, you know, under their horrific anti-gay laws, Oscar Wilde wouldn't have been branded a criminal and all his writing banned. But yeah, right now, Putin's Russia is constantly in the news. Firstly, there's all the Trump administration's connections with Russia, from the national security adviser Michael Flynn having to step down, to Ivanka's connections with a very powerful oligarch who's mates with Putin, to Trump during his campaign telling Russia to hack Hillary, to him saying he does know Putin, then he doesn't, then he does, to Rex Tillerson's Secretary of State's award from Putin and his oil company's Russian rigs, to... Look... Every time there's one revelation about Trump and Russia, you open it up and find an even bigger one. He's so entwined with Putin, it's like a reverse Russian doll. Then there's the Russian funding of many far-right European political parties, including Marine Le Pen's Front National. And of course, there is Russia's involvement in Syria, which they declared last week that they had won the Syrian civil war, which immediately defines it as not a civil war. So Russia is definitely influencing the world right now, and mostly, it seems, not for good. I, for one, just missed the days of Putin only popping up when he had pictures taken of him riding bareback on a horse or hand gliding with eagles like some sort of Disney animation about a little toe that comes to life through magic. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about Russia, uh, you might be a specialist, but for me, apart from a misspent youth filled with a lot of vodka, occasionally playing a Zangief on Street Fighter and a bevy of Cold War action films featuring Arnold Schwarzenegger not really doing a Russian accent, I really know very little about how things are there now. And it feels with Russia seeming to influence some of the most terrifying political decisions in the developed world right now, we should probably understand a little more of what happens in that country, that's so big it traverses two continents, straddling the northern hemisphere like a US president's shitty hair. Coincidence? Yes. So, this week I spoke to Konstantin Kissin, a Russian, British politics and economics translator who's recently turned his hand to political stand-up comedy. I asked him what exactly is happening in Mother Russia right now, what the deal with Putin is, and why does he look like he's constantly trying to stop his ribcage from eating his neck? And is everyone always rushing around, or is that just a shit joke? It is a shit joke, and I, I didn't ask him the last two questions. But I think you'll find that Konstantin gives a perfect guide to everything you need to know about Russia right now, so we're all equipped for when Brexit kicks in and we all have to eat beets and herring for the foreseeable future. Here's Konstantin. In the UK, uh, all the news that we get about Russia is basically, uh, you know, back to the days of all the films that we had during the Cold War. It's like Vladimir Putin's terrifying. He's an authoritarian. He breaches human rights conditions. He kills all his enemies and caters for the uh, oligarchs. Um, how true is that view of him? And if it's not true, what sort of political situation is Russia currently in? Uh, well, I would kind of disagree with your initial premise that it's all back to, to the films we watched. I think it's, broadly speaking, accurate reporting of what's happening in Russia at the moment. Uh, Vladimir Putin has been in power for 17 years, something a lot of people don't realize. Um, and the way he came to power was undemocratic, and the way he's maintained his power is broadly undemocratic. Uh, in the 2011 elections, his party won the elections and in some districts, in some constituencies, his party had a 146% turnout uh, for the whole country. Uh, and uh, if, if your listeners think that I'm just making this up, you can just go on Google and simply type in the, f the figure 146% and you will see a video in which a Russian TV channel is actually broadcasting a breakdown of the percentages each party got. And you can see that it adds up to 146%. Um, so the history of Vladimir Putin's uh, government is one of continued undemocratic uh, retention of power. 
Um, in terms of the authoritarianism, uh, since Vladimir Putin came to power, he quashed any, the budding uh, free media and free press that was that managed to develop somewhat under Boris Yeltsin up to 99. Uh, every major radio channel, TV channel, newspaper now in Russia is state-owned, which was not the case before. Uh, and any TV channels or media channels, even local ones that broadcast anything other than what the government allows them to are shut down or squeezed out of the market. Uh, in terms of uh, killing off or uh, getting rid of opposition, um, every single semi-credible political opponent, potential political opponent that Vladimir Putin has ever had is now either dead, exiled or in prison. Um, and to the latest case is Alexei Navalny, who's a blogger, actually, who, whose blog deals with exposing corruption in Russia. And he has recently been convicted of, of various charges, which are obviously not true. Um, and, uh, you know, Mikhail Khodorkovsky was a very famous story, the man who, who tried to challenge Vladimir Putin and supported pro-democracy parties. He spent 10 years in prison and he was released a couple of years ago. Uh, Gary Kasparov, the former chess world champion who started a party in Russia, now lives in America with the security guards. And, and the list goes on and on. Boris Nemtsov obviously was shot, um, I think it was two years ago, uh, and killed right in front of the Kremlin. So uh, I think um, it, it's interesting to me, and I apologize for this very long answer, but it's interesting to me. I hope you don't mind me revealing a little bit of how the sausage is made. When, when we were talking <laughs> about making the podcast, you emailed me and you said that, uh, you know, in the UK, we tend to get news either from Russia Today, which is very pro-Russian, pro-Putin, or BBC and other news organizations, which are obviously, I don't, I don't remember the exact words used, but I think the implication was that basically the Russian channels are biased towards Russia, the Western channels are biased against Russia. Um, and I, I actually think this is a, a big trap that we have fallen into in the West, where in our, in our quest to make balanced reporting, we've forgotten that there is such a thing as truth. Uh, and when you present someone's lies as being as being equivalent to uh, an attempt at honest reporting of what's happening, what you end up reporting is something in the middle between lies and truth, instead of actually trying to find out what the truth is. Um, and uh, one of the things that I noticed when the Ukraine situation happened, which I'm sure we'll talk about, is this: the BBC, for example, which I think is broadly accurate in its reporting about Russia, even they were getting it wrong because one of the things that they were that they were buying into was the Russian myth that there are these Russian speakers in Ukraine and ethnic Russians in Ukraine who are being oppressed. Most of my family are Russian ethnic speakers uh, and Russian ethnic people or Russian speakers in Ukraine and in Russia. And the people who live in Ukraine who speak Russian have never experienced any kind of oppression at all. But because we buy into the propaganda, we then go, okay, well, they're saying that, we're saying this, so the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Well, it isn't. If one, if one party is lying and the other one is trying to tell the truth, sometimes the truth is what the truth is, what it is. It's not in the middle. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, um, it's fascinating to hear that. And I think it's, it's obviously quite hard, I think, for us here, because, as you say, if all the Russian news channels are state-owned, uh, there's only so much information that's coming out of there. Um, and so how, you know, it's quite, it's quite difficult for us to know exactly what the real story is uh, yeah. from the perspective of, say, uh, the BBC's, uh, you know, uh, investigative journalism, the, the money is gone in it. They're not sending journalists out to every part of the world anymore. Mm. So um, it's, it's, this is one of the reasons why I asked you, because it's fascinating to know yeah. what the actual story is. Um, and so sort of looking at that then is... Uh, because I, I've bizarrely heard Russia be referred to as a democracy. I've been refer heard it referred to as sort of communist state, but it doesn't. It doesn't sound like any of those things. It sounds like sort of authoritarian rule. Um, that's what it is. Yeah, that's right. what it is. So it's not. It's not a communist state because uh, communism is a very specific set of ideas. It's an ideology, and the the Soviet Union, uh, the precursor to, to modern Russia, was a state based on the communist ideology. Um, whatever, you, whatever you think about that ideology is a different issue, but it is a very strong, consistent, uh, comprehensive ideology and view of the world. And Russia is not that anymore. Uh, so you don't have state ownership of, um, of 
not state ownership, but public ownership of every asset. You have private property, all of these things that in the Soviet Union technically didn't exist. Um, but in terms of democracy, just to, to flesh out the history of uh, where we are today. So in 99, uh, Russia, Russian president was Boris Yeltsin. And uh, at the end of his tenure as president, at the end of his second term, uh, the problem that he faced was very much existential. Uh, given all the things that had happened under his government, as they probably would have under any other president in Russia at that time, he would have been at, at physic in physical danger had he stepped down in the normal democratic way by simply allowing a, a purely democratic transition of power. Because the people who came after him would have said, well, look, under you, all these oligarchs stole the money with your connivance, you stole money, blah, 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 blah. And he probably would have been sent to prison or, or killed in some way. So what he had to do was to find some kind of mechanism to hand over power in a way that he would be allowed then to live and live in peace. And so what he did is he found some guy out of nowhere. Nobody had ever heard of this guy. The guy was a KGB colonel. Then he worked in the mayor's office in St. Petersburg. And he gradually integrated him into the presidential administration and eventually made him acting prime minister. And this guy is, of course, Vladimir Putin. So Vladimir Putin has made acting prime minister immediately after being nobody. Nobody had heard of him at all. And then at that point, Boris Yeltsin said that he's stepping down on health grounds. And Vladimir Putin basically became the most powerful man in Russia without ever having been elected to anything. And shortly after that, an election was held. And of course, in Russia, if you have the if you are the, the current incumbent, if you have that what they call in Russia administrative resource, in other words, the machinery of the state that you can use in an election, you're very likely to win. So Vladimir Putin came to power in this way, which is why I call it undemocratic. He served his two terms and the, the types of elections that uh, that happen in Russia I already described to you. Yeah. Uh, at the end of that, he did exactly the same thing, but he, he took it a step further. So he plucked a guy out of nowhere called Dmitry Medvedev. He made him acting prime minister. He then had him elected president and they swapped. So Putin became prime minister. When Dmitry Medvedev became president, he immediately changed the constitution, allowing Vladimir Putin or anyone, in fact, to have another presidential term and a longer presidential term, at which point they swapped again. And Putin then became president, which he is now. And there's an election in 2018 coming up in which Putin can run again. So uh, if that sounds like a democracy to you, I, I, I'm not sure I know what a democracy is. It's, it's certainly authoritarian, as you say. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds to me like the sort of thing that we'd intervene in uh, if it was in another country, you know? Mm. Uh, it's the sort of thing that you hear, like, like Assad has been doing in Syria, and before, obviously, we went to Syria to assist with ISIS or whatever, it was sort of meant to get, you know, dealing with Assad because of the, that kind of rule. Um, is it, I Yeah, mean, and Russia has oil as well, so so it's uh, you've got all your bases covered in terms of the intervention thing. The only problem with Russia is it's got a lot of nukes. That's, that's, that's right. why we don't do it. Well, that's it. But also, I wondered. Obviously, there's a lot of there's a lot of money in Russia, and oligarchs. You've mm. got investments all over the world. Is that mm. part of it as well? Um, no, I think I think the, the reason that Russia plays the prominent role in the world that it does, and the reason that we treat Russia differently to to Syria, or to Iraq, or to to Saudi Arabia, even or to whatever, is the fact that Russia has nuclear weapons. And um, when we talk about nuclear weapons, there are many countries in the world that have them. Uh, but what Russia has is long-range ballistic strategic nuclear weapons in a quantity that is sufficient to destroy the world even without reaching its target. In other words, if all the Russian nuclear weapons were to be detonated in their silos in Russia, we would still end all life on the planet. And that's why we take Russia seriously. Sure, which is, uh, again, even more terrifying because then I presume that means... There's not really anything the rest of the world could do about it without, you know, viable threat. Uh, but I'm guessing there's never going to be an opposition to Putin as long as he's in place. Because, uh, you know, is, is there any uh, feasible group that could ever unseat him or any movement that could ever unseat him? Well, it, it's one of those things that's impossible to predict. Uh, certainly while he, while he has power, uh, he has uh, stamped out any budding uh, attempts at opposition. I've told you about the different people who've tried to 
oppose him in the past. And uh, he has cleaned the political space of anyone who could potentially challenge him. But, um, you know, in the days before the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, no one had predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union. So these regimes, uh, they, they collapse uh, in what are called black swan events, usually these unpredictable uh, major impact events that no one can really foresee. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know whether Vladimir Putin will be president of Russia until he until his death. That may well be that may well be the case, uh, or something may happen uh, which may result in um, in him losing power. One of the things that's happened in Russia since the Ukraine uh, crisis, as it's called, since Russia annexed Crimea and invaded eastern Ukraine, um, one of the things that's happened is the Russian economy has been. Uh, in decline. So the Russian economy shrank by 3.6% in 2015. It shrank again last year. Uh, in fact, it shrank again in 2015. It shrank again in 2016. Um, so it's continuing to decline. And one of the, the shocking statistics that I uh, recently came across is that in 2014 and 2013, before the Ukraine thing happened, 77% of Russian households had savings. Right. Today, that figure is 23%. Oh. So half the country no longer has savings as a result of what's happened, um, which is a very significant change. Now, the Russian people are very stoic and, and in, in some ways, uh, Vladimir Putin has successfully cast this economic decline as the West oppressing Russia for uh, seeking to exercise its rightful influence in the world. But ultimately, the reason the Soviet Union collapsed was the fact that we had bread queues. So yeah. if, if, if Russian people feel like they have nothing to eat, that could be a, a, very, um, a very powerful motivating force for a change of regime. That said, I don't think we're there quite yet. And um, the support for Vladimir Putin, at least officially, uh, is something like 86% in Russia. So he's certainly not unpopular by any means. There's a lot of debate about how accurate that figure is um, and how inflated it is. But it's it's certainly true that he is at the moment popular. Having said that, we have many examples in Russian history of leaders being popular uh, people like Stalin, and then the moment after they die, suddenly it's discovered that they were this horrible, brutal dictator and no one liked them. So <laughs> we, we'll find out, I guess, is the, is the honest answer. Sure. I mean, that's what I was going to ask next, really, is what is, people that are living in Russia right now, Russian citizens, I mean, what is life like for them at the moment? You say that Putin's uh, was well, supposedly popular. We, we, we're not entirely sure, but why would they be in favor of him you know is is life okay if you're living in russia right now uh, if you're losing your savings it doesn't sound particularly good yeah uh, you've got to remember uh, with that in mind though you've got to remember that uh, russians are not uh, germans or, or brits or americans uh, most of the people alive in russia today have gone through things that were much much worse so the people who lived under the soviet union will remember uh, will remember completely different uh, life in, entirely, uh, and the people who lived through the, the crazy period of the 90s after the collapse of the Soviet Union, to them, not having savings is, is the default setting. So sure. the, the reason that Vladimir Putin is, is popular is, uh, is the same reason that Hitler was popular in, in, in the 30s, which is he's perceived as having rebuilt the economy, he's perceived, which I don't think is accurate, but uh, he certainly oversaw a period of, of economic growth, uh, it was it was the same everywhere else in the world. Um, it was just a, a period of boom for the whole world. But he's perceived in Russia as having overseen that. Um, and more importantly, even than that, I think, uh, just like Hitler was perceived as rebuilding Germany's status uh, after the humiliation of the Treaty of Versailles, Vladimir Putin is widely perceived in Russia as having rebuilt Russia's status following the humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And that's why you're seeing these um, land grabs in Georgia and Ukraine. They, they are not economically rational. Uh, the economic punishment that Russia has seen uh, uh, in response to them has actually been very significant. And, uh, you know, as I've said, Russian, the Russian economy is shrinking. Uh, Russian people are suffering. But the, the, the Ukraine and Crimea are Putin's Sudetenland. They're an attempt to gather territory which supposedly contains ethnic 
Germans in Hitler's case, ethnic Russians in Putin's case. And it's an attempt to rebuild Russia's former glory, which is something that resonates very strongly in Russia, which is why people are prepared to suffer uh, and still support someone who does that. So it's, it's, it's kind of a nationalistic pride that's keeping him going. Absolutely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we'll be back with Constantin in a minute, but first... This week, the Supreme Court. You remember them? Do you remember them? They were recently called the enemies of the people by Wasted Dead Tree Daily Mail. Well, the Supreme Court this week upheld British citizens having to earn a minimum of £18,600 a year in salary in order to have their foreign spouse from outside the EEA living in the UK. So yeah, now they seem to be enemies of the couple instead. See what, see what I did there? Well, they decided it didn't breach current human rights legislation. And current human rights legislation is mainly Article 8, the right to a private and family life, though presumably not at the same time or your family would get pretty sick of you hiding everything from them. Don't look at my internet history, it's my human right. Sorry, got a bit personal. Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, created in 1998, basically says that the state has an obligation to refrain from interfering with the right itself and should take positive measures to criminalise breaches of the right. Which makes you wonder why Piers Morgan wasn't arrested, eh? I mean, not just for hacking phones and uh, interfering with the right for private and family life, but also because his face and the very mention of his name makes me feel like my life has been violated by some sort of horrific disease. There's a lot in Article 8 that defines the right to a private and family life. One of these is the right not to be subject to unlawful state surveillance in your own home, something that will probably change under the Investigatory Powers Bill that MPs voted through, when lawful state surveillance means that they're going to know every single time you type into Google, song that goes do 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 da online. It also includes respect for correspondence, allowing you to have the right for uninterrupted and uncensored communication with others, which again, the state will probably be able to see once the investigatory powers bill comes in, but hey, don't worry, they won't interrupt your flow while snattering away, they'll just get you afterwards. And most important with the Supreme Court's judgement is the right to family life. Now, there is no specifically defined model of family life, so it could be a relationship, it could be parents and their children, it could be even further wider family connections, it could be your old school fam, or it could be Fam Ekman, a Norwegian illustrator, although it's probably not those last two. But it is all a bit vague, and nowhere does it say that it'd be a disruption to your family life if your partner has to live in an entirely different country because you earn more than the average wage in West Somerset. In fact, in 2015, research found that £18,600 annual salary excludes 41% of the British working population, and with an increase in zero-hours contracts and the gig economy, it may be even higher now. And anyone on such uncertain work hours wouldn't qualify anyway, and if you're working for Sports Direct, then chances are your life is already tough enough without your loved one not being around to yell Mike Ashley is a cunt with you when you get home. Now, obviously, some immigration restrictions need to be in place in any country, but the issue is in the Home Office's detail on this policy, or really, lack of. It has to be you, the British resident, that earns more than £18,600, not your partner, and it doesn't count if it's contract work. 
It also only takes into consideration your previous year's earnings, so not the salary you're currently on. So if you're abroad waiting to move over, after currency conversion it might not be enough either, or if you're a student studying then you haven't earned enough. Nor does it take into account any assets that you might have. So you could work in the voluntary sector, but return home to your golden apartment made of unicorn ivory and eat off diamond encrusted plates. But the home office just don't give a damn, and you'll have to cart all your fancy kitchenware back to your home on the moon. No, I don't quite know who I'm imagining in this scenario either, but I'm fairly sure they fought Superman at some point. And this threshold goes up to £22,400 if there is one or more non-European-born child in the family. So yeah, if you fancy someone that lives abroad, you'd better save the jiggy till you get here. However, while the Supreme Court upheld the earnings threshold, they did say that the rules around it unlawfully failed to take proper account of the Borders, Citizenship and Immigration Act 2009 to regard the need to safeguard and promote the welfare of children. There are currently at least 15,000 Skype children in this country, which sounds like the modern equivalent of what happens when phone sex gets too cray-cray, but it actually just means that they're children who can only keep in touch with one of their parents over the internet, and trying to make those kids get ready for school or eat their greens when they can just hang up on your face is not good for them. Also, this law was brought in by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary in 2012. You remember, remember back when she got all those vans to drive around telling illegal immigrants to go home or face arrest, and then they got banned after it was ruled it breached the government's duty on equality, and the Advertising Standards Agency found its message to be inaccurate? Probably because it should have just said, this is racist scaremongering in big letters, and then had May's direct phone line on it. But... This minimum income, despite coming in in 2012, affected all couples where one partner was from outside the EU, even if they got together before the date it was introduced. And so people like Irene Clennell, as BuzzFeed reported last week, have been swiftly deported, without her seeing a lawyer, uh, even though she's a carer for her partner and she has children and grandchildren in the UK. Irene was granted indefinite stay in the UK, but she had to reapply for that once she went home to Singapore to care for her parents. And then she returned in 1998 and hasn't been able to get indefinite stay granted again since. Because, you know, going home to look after your parents isn't very British, is it? I mean, how dare she? If she wanted to live here, she'd show a callous disregard for anyone abroad unless they serve her chips when she points and shouts at them. Irene was placed in a detention centre last month and then bundled off to Singapore last Sunday with only 15 quid in her pocket, no change of clothes and nowhere to stay when she landed. Irene didn't have a job as she was a carer for her partner John who's ill. I mean how dare she care for someone and expect to be appreciated. It's almost like despite all her time in the UK she still has no idea of British values. BuzzFeed started a crowdfund for legal fees for Irene which you can find online and MPs are raising the case with the Home Secretary but how many cases like this aren't reported? The Home Office says all applications for leave to remain in the UK indefinitely are granted on individual merit, but when having a family here and caring for them isn't considered much merit, it seems only like earning a ton of money is. And post-Brexit, will we still be adhering to the European Convention of Human Rights? Theresa May isn't that keen on it, and I'm not saying it's because she isn't human, but she's definitely a bit not human. Will it change from non-EU partners to any non-UK partners, and could we see an awful lot more families split up? Well, hopefully the Home Office will take the Supreme Court's recommendations into consideration, but even then, with the earnings threshold, it's only decent earners who are allowed to have a family from abroad in the UK. It's worryingly as though when Theresa May vowed to support families who were just about managing last year, it was by booting half their members out so they just have less people to support. And now, back to Constantin. There was something that I heard, uh, and in fact, I think it was mentioned, uh, there was a piece on, on John Oliver's last week tonight that always gets to these uh, issues before I do. Um, but they, um, <laughs> they were sort of talking about how uh, a big part of, of Putin's uh, possible involvement in Trump's election and in French election, all that is, you know, is to be able to say to his own country that democracy isn't working elsewhere. You know, to be able to say that it's working here and it's failing everywhere else, things are falling apart. Do you think that's that sounds like a reasonable motive? Uh, maybe as a secondary motive, um, maybe as a secondary motive, I, th- I think uh, the primary driving force behind Putin's involvement in American elections and Brexit and the National Front in, in France and in many other places uh, is uh, to destabilize the West and to weaken its response to what Russia, uh, what Putin planned to do at the time. So uh, one of the things that um, I have personally seen, so this is not a conspiracy theory, um, in addition to, to my comedy, I'm also a translator. I translate documents from Russian into English for big banks, for legal firms, for and for governments sometimes. Uh, and in the round... 
maybe 2011, 2012, just as it was becoming clear that Putin was not going to hand over power at the end of the second term. Uh, and it was clear that his uh, grasp on Russia was to continue. I started seeing a lot of documents coming through, uh, which were about uh, effectively a strategy for creating a certain perception of Russia in the West. Uh, and the documents I was starting to see was literally lists of people in the West who could be counted on to come out and support Russia at certain points in time. And I'm not talking just about random people. I'm talking about former chancellors, former prime ministers, former American presidents, senior politicians, uh, editors of major British newspapers, etc. These people have all been got to in some way. Uh, whether that's through funding or whether that's through influence or, or whatever. So Russia has been seeking for, for a period of time now to shape Western opinion. And I suspect this was to prepare the ground for the somewhat kind of mixed paralysis that we saw in response to what happened in Ukraine. Um, it's to destabilize the West. Because you see, the people in Russia, they don't really care that much about democracy. They're not really that interested in it. So to say, well, right. democracy isn't working, that's why we don't need it here. I, I don't think that that really works. And also for all the destabilizing that um, that, that Russia is doing, the Western democracies are still democracies. You know, even with, with Trump in power now, he's finding himself, uh, his ideology and authoritarianist tendencies crashing against the checks and balances of the American system. So if that was the intention, I don't think I don't think it's working. Sure. So, so it's mainly, yeah, it's a sort of change, change the viewpoint of Russia, I guess, and like you say, to sort of distract from what they're actually doing. But I mean, mm. if we're, uh, you know, there's so much evidence to say that he absolutely was involved in Trump's election, um, mm. or, or Russian hackers were at least. Um, and now there's this, there's been sort of, I think it's seven Russian ambassadors to the US that have died within the last couple of months. Mm. Some say suspiciously. Uh, there's obviously the US National Security Advisor, Michael Flynn, uh, that has been fired for his connections. Um, I mean, th this does seem like some sort of Russian power grab, doesn't it? There's, you know, it feels like there's, uh, it's a you know it's it's a faster um, kind of power grab than we've seen in some time. I think absolutely, and I think the uh, the one of one of the things that the KGB or now the FSB has never been accused of is incompetence. Uh, they, they, they these are people who know what they're doing. They're very clever. Uh, they have no morals, which helps a lot when you're trying to get something done that's uh, you know unconscionable or illegal. Um, and they're very good at it. And they've realized that the warfare of the 21st century is at least half ideological. It's in the mind, it's on, so on social media, it's in the newspapers. And they've invested considerable resource into making that happen. And uh, one other thing you, you say, uh, either Putin or Russian hackers, I think it's helpful to, th to remember that Russia is such an authoritarian place that if you had a bunch of hackers in Russia who were doing something that the government didn't want them do, to be doing, they would end up in prison or beaten up or killed very, very quickly. So sure. if a bunch of Russian hackers are hacking the, the Democratic National Committee servers, you know that is done with Putin's approval. It's just how the country works. Sure, sure. And, and, and do you think that the... Because obviously now we've got the U.S. is in a very strange place and, and, you know, God knows what is going to be happening there in the next mm. few months, whether Trump will be impeached or not, or whatever. But um, with that happening and, you know, surely the the Brexit must be making quite a difference as well. I'm assuming that would be in Putin's favour because he's not a big fan of the EU either, is he? No, because a strong EU is a natural counterweight to Russian expansion in Europe. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons. That's one of the things I, I try to explain to people in in before Brexit. Whatever you think about the EU and immigration, and these are all realistic things for people to be concerned about. But the the one thing that the Brexit has definitely done is to weaken the European Union's resolve in responding to Russian aggression. Um, and that's why Putin has been funding uh, these parties all over Europe, uh, not just uh, not just Brexit. I'm sure that, uh, you know, this is something that is just a suspicion of mine, but I have no doubt that um, 20 years from now we will have in, uh, evidence that um, 
the Brexit campaign was supported by Putin. Maybe we already do. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah certainly there's, been, the na- there's a lot of evidence that don't, uh, there's been uh, Russian donations to uh, leave EU and there's been quite a, quite a few stories about that sort of thing. I'm sure. And, and uh, actually, the interesting thing for me as well is if you if you remember back in, in the middle of last year, I think it was the Panama Papers revelations where it was revealed that all these people had been using offshore accounts. And, and the biggest one, of course, was Vladimir Putin. Uh, and Vladimir Putin uh, has an estimated net wealth of about 50 billion dollars. Uh, this is the, f- the kind of figures that you get out of Russian commentators. Now, you've got to appreciate that not all of that $50 billion is for hookers and blow, right? There's, there's only so much you can spend on that. So uh, that I mean, $50 billion... Well, interestingly, <laughs> after the Trump uh, revelations with the, with the, with the prostitutes, um, the supposedly Russian prostitutes, um, uh, Vladimir Putin's first comment on the issue was, well, Russian prostitutes are the best prostitutes. Uh, so perhaps he, he knows more about it than we do. But uh, in any case, uh, my point is, not all of that money is Putin's retirement fund. $50 billion is a very significant amount of money and I suspect it's being funneled abroad because it, from there it goes into the pockets of all these people who are then destabilizing or, or acting in their own interest but those interests happen to, to be aligned with Russia's interest. And in Europe, Russia's interest is to weaken the Euro- European Union and to prevent it from becoming a credible opposing force in Europe to Russian aggression. Sure. So it's really, I mean, it's really in a lot of countries' interest. And it'd be interesting to see what happens in France uh, with the upcoming elections. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about Marine uh, Le Pen being, uh, uh, having donations from Russian uh, Russian bank. I think she took a massive loan from mm. her campaign. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see what happens in France. And if she ends up winning, which would be absolutely terrifying, that will obviously mm. be... Uh, very much in Putin's favour. Um, so another question for you, because I, and I think uh, uh, I've already established how little I know about Russia. Um, but the, uh, one of the things that I, uh, I have been quite baffled by is why Russia wanted to intervene so strongly in the Syrian civil war. And they're now saying that they've won the civil war, which sort of goes against the point of it being a civil war. I think if another country wins mm-hmm. it. But, you know, mm-hmm. um, what is uh, what what's in it for them? Why would they... Uh, Sort of be active in, in. I know they're now going to be active in drafting the new constitution for Syria. What? Why would? Why would that be a, a thing for Russia? Well, I would change your question to from what's in it for them to what's in it for him, uh, sure. and uh, because ultimately all politics is domestic politics. Uh, so when Russia is doing something internationally, the purpose of that is domestic. There's uh, the purpose of that is to respond to something in Russia, and. Um, Putin is a wartime president in the sense that his popularity is based on maintaining Russia in a state of conflict. Not necessarily uh, always military conflict, but a state of in an adversarial combative position with someone else. That is the position that he prefers because that's the position in which he can maintain his popularity. So um, much as the, the invasion of Ukraine, it's not something that made any sense in practical terms for Russia. Um, then the the situation in Syria is very similar. I mean, yes, Russia has its Russia's only Mediterranean naval base uh, is in Syria in Tartus, and it's the only place where Russian ships can can dock and refuel in the Mediterranean without having to go through the the straits into the Black Sea past Turkey, with which it's had a rocky relationship. Um, but the the practical reality is that the, the the involvement in Syria for Russia isn't particularly worth it. Uh, it's 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 Russia. It's Putin rather trying to maintain his popularity by maintaining uh, a constant state of conflict. Because if you can keep Russia in a state of conflict, then the Russian people are distracted from the fact that their savings are dissipating, distracted from the fact that the economy is shrinking, uh, and uh, that's how he's keeping his popularity. So that's really the main the, the main reason I think behind the, the Russia's involvement in Syria. Wow. Okay, so how? What a depressing reason for so many deaths mm. uh, that it's purely for kind of uh, self popularity, I suppose. Well, you've uh, got to remember that, the, the, as I keep saying, he's a, uh, an ex KGB man, and what, the first thing that, that the KGB train out of you is any sense of morality. So, in that kind of mental space, if if your uh, if your intention is to maintain popularity and you have no morals, why wouldn't you keep fighting wars, right? 
course, of course. And and I mean, I, I assume so. Just to go back to to uh, Russia itself, you said that the next elections uh, next year. 2018, yeah. 2018, and are you? Uh, I'm guessing, just going to assume that it'll be pretty much the same as it was before. There's, there's no hope that anything <laughs> different is going to happen just yet. Well, we don't know. That that that's sure. that's the one thing uh, with this kind of uh, regime is we simply don't know. Um, they have no. I don't believe that Vladimir Putin has announced that he will run again yet. Uh, he may not. Uh, he may be seeking to find another handover person and it's unlikely to be Dmitry Medvedev because he has already been uh, somewhat tarnished by his subservient role um, in the Putin-Medvedev dynamic. Um, but if Putin is ready to hand over power in the sense that he feels that uh, it will be taken away from him if he doesn't have hand it over now or if he wants to retire or whatever or if he becomes ill or, he, or dies even, these are all things that are possible, then anything is possible. Uh, so anyone who tells you they know what's going to happen uh, in Russia next year uh, is either excessively confident or, or trying to present their, their agenda as the truth. Sure, sure. They know something we all don't. They've got <laughs> something in one of those documents. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, uh, apart from, and I sort of, I realise every time I do on these interviews, I always say on the show, uh, we always end by going, oh, wow, everything's really terrifying and bleak. <laughs> Well, so, I'm glad to have contributed to that picture. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's fascinating. But I, in, in terms of some sort of uh, something to leave the listeners on, uh, apart from yourself, obviously, are there any other political commentators or journalists um, or anyone really that you'd recommend that they follow online or they read up about if they're, you know, interested in proper information on what's happening in in Russia? Uh, yeah. So just coming back to your point about the world being all depressing and terrible. Um, I think reality is important uh, and it's important to recognize reality even if it is depressing. Uh, one of the things that I remembered very clearly uh, in 2006 when Alexander Litvinenko uh, was poisoned uh, in London by KGB officers on Putin's orders, um, the question time, I think literally the, the day after his death or soon after his death, invited a, a Russian oligarch called uh, Boris Berezovsky. Uh, question time the, the the tv program in britain uh, where there's a, there are political discussions and um, boris berezovsky the oligarch he was friends with alexander levinenko and when he was asked what he thought about the events and how he resp how he uh, responded to the death of alexander levinenko he said it's a very good thing because at least now we know in the west what we're dealing with we're no longer able to pretend that the Russian regime is this pseudo-democratic or democratic peaceful regime. We know what's going on. And that's why I think it's important vis-a-vis -vis Russia to appraise ourselves of the reality. Uh, even if the reality is depressing, even if it's sad, even if it's, if it's difficult, we have to appreciate what we're actually dealing with. Because unless we do that, we are in a much weaker position to respond. We're in a much weaker position to be able to deal with it. So I think it's very important for people to be aware of of what Russia is, what Russia has become, uh, and why Russia is doing what it's doing. I mean, one of the things that um, I think has has patently been ineffective is the economic sanctions against Russia in response to the invasion of Ukraine. Because people in the West, I think, were not quite aware of how little impact that would have on public sentiment in Russia. So if the idea was that we would turn the Russian people against Vladimir Putin by... I remember actually another episode of Question Time watching and I was just laughing my head off. There was a woman in the audience who said, well, you people, you don't understand how terrible these sanctions have been for Russia. Uh, my friend lives in Russia and you can't buy bananas in Russia. <laughs> and and anyone who knows Russia and Russian people, I remember telling my friends and family in Russia the story. They were laughing their head off because Russian people don't care about bananas and they quite happily live without bananas if it means that the national glory of Russia is restored and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's very, very important to realistically understand what is actually happening in Russia and why Russia is doing what it's doing. 
Um, and uh, if we pretend otherwise, we, we make ourselves weak uh, in the West, as we have been. And I keep using the word we. I am both Russian and British, but I've, I've lived here for a long time. So that's maybe sure. why it comes across. And, now, and you're here now. So that, yeah, and I, I live in yeah. Britain now, fortunately. <laughs> uh, I feel very fortunate about that, uh, being able to speak my mind on these issues. Um, sure. In terms of um, people and uh, books and things like that, the... I have to say, as I said, I think at the beginning of our podcast, that most of the Western media's reporting of Russia is, broadly speaking, unbiased, uh, if if not somewhat inaccurate, perhaps through a lack of knowledge. But certainly it's, broadly speaking, unbiased. So if you go on the BBC and you read something about Russia, in my experience, it pretty much corresponds to what's happening in Russia. Um, the, the, if you want an alternative point of view, uh, one of the big name commentators on this issue is a guy called Liam Halligan uh, and he he's very pro-Russian uh, but he brings a lot of facts and interesting things to the conversation uh, so it's someone I'd recommend you check out if you want to kind of um, test <laughs> test your ability to, to take on dif- different points of view and hold them in your mind simultaneously um, <clears throat> but apart from that unfortunately I have to say that um, English speaking English language reporting on Russia is is not broadly speaking very good and I, I try to uh, get all my information from Russian speaking sources because that's that tends to be where you get the accurate stuff and, and I, I know it's not very helpful for people who don't speak Russian but if you do I recommend you kind of get it from, from the horse's mouth uh, and try to evaluate it that way. Many thanks to Constantin for talking with me. Um, I hope you found that as fascinating and as useful as I did. You can find him on Twitter at Constantin Kissin. So that's K-O-N-S-T-A-N-T-I-N-K-I-S-I-N. Uh, and at his Facebook page, which is called From Russia With Laugh, which he promises he isn't very proud of title-wise, but it definitely made me snigger. It's really good. Um, and he posts up jokes and memes and articles about Russia on that page. So do check it out. Um, also, if you live in the Tunbridge Wells area, he is starting up a comedy night there soon called Comedy Tap. Which will be at the Sussex Arms on April the 9th. So do head along and support that if you can. Um, after our interview, we kept talking, and Konstantin mentioned some really, really interesting stuff uh, about his father being a political refugee from Russia and some of his thoughts on Brexit and immigration in the UK. Um, it's really, really interesting stuff, and I asked him if I could use it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pop it on the Patreon as a bit of extra stuff. And if you'd like to hear it, head to patreon.com forward slash bro, throw me a small amount of monthly change, and it'll be winging its way to you in the next few days. As always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, please do let me know. Uh, big thanks to Leo this week, who dropped me an email via partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com uh, with a really great suggestion that I am currently chasing up. Uh, so if you two have a good idea, or even a bad one, or even one that is devoid of moral judgment and is just a total limbo idea, then drop me an email there or contact me at Bro on Twitter or the Bro group on Facebook. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, scary Donald Trump, orange, orange Donald Trump, racist Donald Trump, sexist Donald Trump, stupid Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, oh my god, President Donald Trump, that's a real thing, oh oh god, it's scary, I'm really scared. Okay, super quick Trump speedrun this week. Go! Trump is proposing a 10% spike in defence spending while cutting other departments by the same amount, proving, above everything else, he's overly defensive. Homeland Security unveiled a plan to deport every undocumented immigrant they encounter. The only problem with that is, of course, Homeland Security are currently understaffed, so I guess they'll have to hire in workers from abroad. Trump's transition team told their economic advisers to predict sustained economic growth of 3 to 3.5% and then change all other numbers in their predictions to match this. And I mean, I know predicting is a form of making it up in the first place, but that is just silly. The big orange twat said anti-Semitism has to stop and that he speaks out against it whenever he gets the chance, which it turns out is often, and he hasn't, and it seems that he's obviously so passionate about it that he's considering getting rid of the anti-Semitism envoy as part of his new budget plan in order to increase defence spending. The Trump administration aims to roll back protections for transgender students, meaning they can no longer use bathrooms that correspond with their gender identity in educational institutions. The reasoning is apparently to increase students' safety because there's no evidence of transgender bathroom rights affecting anyone's safety, and let's face it, an emo kid with an assault rifle won't give a shit where you pee, or really a pee where you shit, but Trump is still repealing gun protection laws, so it's all bullshit. Republican John Boner says a full repeal and replace of Obamacare is not going to happen, but Vice President Mike Pence says they are going to replace it with something that is built on freedom and individual responsibility, which translated means if you get ill and you're not rich, you're fucked. 
The FBI rejected a White House request to take down media reports about communications between Trump's pals and Russians during the campaign. The FBI won't comment on it as the communications are part of an ongoing investigation and it seems that Trump's team also sought out people in news organisations to challenge stories about his contact with Russia, all of which makes me cross my fingers so hard that he'll be impeached soon that my hands are morphing into permanent shit shadow puppets. Oh, and Trump said he's not attending the White House Correspondents' Dinner, probably because it's not at Mar-a-Lago at $200,000 a ticket and someone's going to make fun of him in front of everyone and he doesn't want to cry in public. To be fair, Trump banned so much of the media from his last press briefing last week, I don't know who he has left to correspond with anyway. Trips to the US have declined constantly since Trump's travel ban because it's no fun visiting a theme park in a country where the president is a cartoon. Oh, and George W. Bush said the US deserves answers on Trump's relationship with Russia. George W. Bush. The man who wouldn't give anyone answers on why he illegally bombed the shit out of Iraq. Yes, that's where we are now. And that's not even the half of it this past week. I pity whoever it was from NASA that announced the seven Earth-like planets they've discovered and had to tell the president there's now even more places aliens could come from. More next week, because do we have a fucking choice? And that is all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, If you haven't reviewed the show on iTunes, please do. And if you have reviewed the show on iTunes, pat yourself on the back and eat a cake, because you're a good one. If you fancy donating to the Patreon account, uh, please do it at patreon.com forward slash parpolbro. And if you already do, dance a little jig and shake your own hands because you're definitely a gem, mate. And you can also donate via my uh, Ko-fi account. But let's be honest, even if I read it out again, you won't remember it. So just find it on my website or the Parpolbro Twitter or the Parpolbro Facebook group. And regardless of all of that, if you want to contact me, drop me a line at those places or at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Uh, next week is episode 50 because the world still isn't fixed despite 49 episodes of this shit well as a special treat I'm going to try extra hard to fix everything next time be in your ears then PPBers have fun this week's show was brought to you by the numbers £18,600 and the letters from the Home Office saying they aim to stamp out love unless it's purely British love and is largely two people whose entire relationship survives by complaining about how nothing works when it gets windy outside Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.